0: Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, Dr. Miho Ledwith joins the program to talk to the spiritual evolution of our world and his work that receives recognition across the globe. My guest today was ordained a Catholic priest in 1967, subsequently becoming a professor of systematic theology for 16 years at St. Patrick's College in Ireland. He served for 17 years under Pope John Paul as a member of the International Theological Commission, a small group of theologians of international standing, charged with advising the Holy See on theological matters. He appears in What the Bleep Do We Know?, its sequel, Down the Rabbit Hole, and Contact Has Begun. He was interviewed in the new documentaries, Orbs, The Veils Are Lifting, and continues to lecture widely, mainly in North and South America and Europe. He's working on a DVD series that deals with fundamental matters in relation to spiritual evolution. Three titles have appeared so far, The Hamburger Universe in 2005, How Jesus Became a Christ in 2006, and Orbs, Clues to a More Exciting Universe in 2008. His book, The Orb Project, co-authored with the German physicist Dr. Klaus Heinemann, was published in 2007, subsequently translated into 11 languages. He is at present working on Forbidden Truth, a three-volume works that deals with fundamental areas related to human destiny and the mechanics of spiritual evolution. The first part of that work will be called The Other Side of Jesus. His fourth DVD, The Origin of the Human Race and Its Implications Today, is expected in 2010, as will the fifth DVD in the series to be called Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Dr. Mihor Ledwith, welcome to you.
2: Good to be with you, David.
1: I do hope that that was all accurate.
2: <laughs> it's uh, everything my mother told you to say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Super. Michal, um this is indeed a great pleasure, and I would like to take this opportunity to both Klaus Heinemann and to Susie Anthony in the UK for bringing us together today. I'd like to look back at your childhood. Could you... Give me an idea give our listeners an idea of where you were brought up and and what the pressures were and how church uh, stood in your world
2: well i was born in in rural ireland in the southeast close to wales and uh, i grew up in in a it was a very country area you know very average of of the time and obviously the only church that we knew the only way of making any approach to god in your life was through the one form of it that was available namely the catholic church which was the religion i suppose of 90 per- 97% approximately of the people of the republic of ireland in those days when i was when i was growing up obviously it's a very different situation from what exists today and now that we're you know uh, approaching the wider framework of europe and uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier that Ireland and and indeed many, many countries uh, of a similar caste have undergone radical transformations in every shape and form, including of course the religious and and the God question. And I I was very shocked uh, when, much later after I had grown up obviously and gone to university, to discover that once the Soviet Union fell, that I think 70% of the population in Central and Eastern Europe had no allegiance to any form of religious association whatsoever. And uh, I I, I noticed one American sociologist speaking about that. He said that Europe really was a church catastrophe. And uh, the New York Herald Tribune at the same time called it the most godless quarter on earth. So when when I studied in germany and in france during my student days even then it was quite different uh, scene to the one i had grown up with things were much more open much more questioning and there were so many issues that you know that had uh, that had never been faced i just recorded three of the three more of the dvds you were mentioning uh, last week and one of them was i think maybe one of the most central issues that perplexes us all It was God and the obscenity of suffering. I was looking at the enormous amount of suffering, not just from wars, obviously, which has been catastrophic in the last century, but also the the extent of natural disasters. I mean, I think I counted up close to four hundred million people in the twentieth century had died either through war or natural disaster. And certainly, you know, you can't blame natural you can't blame wars. On God, but you certainly, if you if you believe in a God who's all powerful and all loving, um, you have to ask how suffering on such a catastrophic scale can exist. So these are the type of questions uh, that DVD is called "God and the Obscenity of Suffering," as I think I mentioned. But these kind of questions, you know, plagued me uh, all the time when I was a student of theology and when I was in contact with people from the European continent as as I went through my various programs of study for various degrees. And obviously they were not issues that had been faced in the traditional religions that we had grown up with, where everything was very cut and dried, uh, where there were answers to everything. I, I much uh, more went with uh, a statement Albert Einstein said once. Uh, he said, Mystery is not something that baffles the mind. It's something that is so rich that the mind cannot grasp it all straight away. It has to make progress in, in advancement in a piecemeal fashion. The old attitude we had, don't ask questions, that's a mystery, that was, that was the way uh, in which I grew up.
1: So, look, looking back, in retrospect here, what was it exactly that, that led you to become an ordained Catholic priest? in 1967 clearly it was a very different world
2: yes it was a very different world and indeed uh, you know one might say that when I was going through the seminary and going through the various university courses that we did uh, it was in in tumult really the whole student world I think across Europe was in tumult and there was an, an extraordinary questioning of everything going on in the church after the second Vatican Council which ended in in 1965. So, in one sense, it was a very interesting time to grow up and be a student of theology, because all of the old, uh, all of the old certitudes, if you wish, were being questioned. But why did I? Why did I uh, go in for this? Well, I, I, I suppose, looking back at it, I really wanted to know what there was to know about God and. Uh, uh I summed it up uh, in those uh, things I call the four great questions, which are, you know, wh- where did we come from? Uh, what should we do while we're here? Who am I? You know, am I just two arms and a leg and a body walking around? And uh, what may I expect after death? And I didn't find any very satisfactory answers. Most of the answers that were currently available in those years were very, very, emotional and, uh, I suppose, in in many ways very childish in, in the bad sense of that word.
1: Had, had you actually been, therefore, asking this question of yourself as a professor in systematic theology, rather like an actor on stage, receives his feedback, his evolution from his... From the crowd looking upon these actors on the stage, is that how it occurred with you that in in some way your mind was also uh, molded in the way that your students reacted and responded to the theology that you taught?
2: Yes, I mean that. I, I think that was that's one of the great advantages that a professor has. You know, if you are if you are presenting something that's challenging and that's sincere rather than rehashing, you know, uh, cut and dried statements from the past, which I never did. But when you hear people's reaction to that, and, you know, another point of view is always the most helpful thing for anyone who's really interested in doing some research, I could see that those same questions were perplexing everybody. And they were looking for answers, not just pat solutions, you know, that have been handed down and you just accept them and don't ask any more questions. Ours too. Ours to worship and to obey. Ours not to ask the reason why. Sort of tradition.
1: Did that? Did that uh, in some way make you feel compromised in your faith, and and your and your duty, I suppose, to those that you were teaching.
2: Well, I don't think. I mean, I never, I never taught anything that I didn't believe was correct. I, could, I think I can say that honestly. I mean, if there were issues about something, I always expressed them and uh, said what my qualifications on it were. And you know, many many of the issues that are covered in the scriptures or in the church's tradition of Dalwa are time-conditioned. And very often, you know, people uh, sort of have the view that the scriptures, for instance, were let down from God directly by the equivalent of email or fax or whatever. And that that was it. There was no change. You know, I I was struck uh, in in the course of my studies by the writings of a, a great philosopher from Austria who lived his life in England, carol Popper. Yes. And he uh, he summed it all, all up so well for me in in his books like Conjectures and Refutations and Objective Truth. You know, according to Popper and many others like Stephen Kuhn. Uh, in the structure of scientific revolutions, they said basically the method is for any scientific inquiry is make a conjecture about what something is like. You, you, you may be working on very imperfect knowledge and information but make a conjecture and then try your best to destroy that conjecture to show where it's deficient, where new information can help you to change it and then you make another conjecture and so on. That is how science progresses or any knowledge that uh, you might be trying to follow. But the only uh, science in my mind that uh, does not do that is religion. You know, instead of using the benefits of incoming knowledge, you know, to help you to better express your beliefs, religion tends to batten down the hatches and say, this is how it is, and it's permanently true and irreversible, and don't you dare touch it. And of course, uh, you know, we've moved a long way from the days of Giordano Bruno being burned alive at the stake for daring to suggest that there might be intelligent life on other planets outside this one or his contemporary Galileo Galilei, that we are at the center of the universe. Just last week in in one of these DVD recordings, I was uh, looking at a a slide of uh, the M81 galaxy, which is roughly the size of the Milky Way. And we're out in the very far fringes of one of those spiral arms. So, the depth of arrogance for anyone to believe that we are the only planet on which there is intelligent life, and given that there are billions upon billions of these galaxies, you know, the depth of arrogance is mind boggling. How we could ever have allowed ourselves to uh, slip into that narcissism.
1: Before we move into those wider areas, if I may. Sure. Can I ask you, first of all, that this is a a brief answer to this question. Uh, St. Patrick's College, and and this is contextually relevant, I think, St. Patrick's College has become one of the few, if not the only, seminary now in Ireland.
2: Yes, I think it's the only one now, if I'm not mistaken.
1: What is your view on that, and why has that occurred?
2: Well, that's... That's been happening uh, uh, for a long time. I mean, the decline in the numbers of uh, young men going forward for the priesthood, that's been declining certainly since the mid-60s. In fact, I remember back uh, in, I think it was about 1982 or three. I was calculating that if the present rate of decline continued that really we might have very, very few candidates for the priesthood by the turn of the century. That's ten years ago now. Now, it hasn't gone down to that, but uh, you know, the, there are very small numbers compared to what there were when I was a student. When I uh, went to Maynooth College, it was a wonderful, still is a wonderful college, but when I went there, for instance, there were 106 in my class, and uh, we got uh, 12 more, I think, later. So 118 was my full class. Nowadays, obviously, it would be, you know, I don't know what the numbers are, but a fraction of that.
1: Given all of that, and clearly during this period you are questioning the deeper meanings of evolution and of religion in our world, in society, you moved on to uh, become theological advisor to Pope John Paul II. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that period Um, This uh, uh, amazing man, can you describe him and how that was to further your own personal evolution?
2: Yes. Uh, Well, the first, uh, I was appointed to the commission in 1980, and I served there for 17 years, as as you said. Now, the first time we met the Pope personally was just after he had recovered from the assassination attempt. Uh, I remember we met him in Castle Gondolfo because he was still not uh, fully back to health, and he had uh, one of his fingers was in a plaster cast where the bullet had hit him. But I I had a great regard for Pope John Paul II. Uh, He was an outdoors man, in that sense very different from someone who was uh, an enormous support to him, the present Pope, uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger was sort of the polar opposite in terms of temperament and character. But Pope John Paul was an outdoors man. I mean, he obviously uh, had all that background during the the Second World War when he worked in a quarry and various other things. But uh, apart from that experience, you know, he was active with youth work. He used to go skiing. He still skied even as Pope and uh, taking people on hikes in the mountains and so forth. So he had very very good uh, basic human instinct if, if i could put it that way now in terms of course of theology he was uh, very orthodox and very traditional but he had great humanity and, and common sense going with that which often tempered you know some of the uh, versions of uh, of extreme conservatism that you may find elsewhere or it, is not
1: balanced by it, humanity. In, in that event, um, in your advisory capacity, were you thinking, um, I suppose that radically is the wrong word to use, but were you thinking more along the lines of, of e- evolution uh, the, l- looking at the wider issues um, when you were advising Pope John Paul II and, and was he open uh, to that sort of conversation?
2: He was you know uh, I know that his reputation is uh, that he was an extreme conservative and in many respects he was but there was also this tremendous openness and I think once uh, something was put forward to him, he, he was receptive to it. For instance, he was the only one of all the line of popes uh, over the last 300 years who said um, in a confidential document that went around the Curia, you know, we cannot stay quiet about certain things in the past that occurred and which totally trashed, uh, you know, uh, basic human rights and he was the one who went on to say that the church was wrong in its condemnation of Galileo. You know, you might... That is a very, very, uh, very, very uh, late stage to have done it. But he did do it. So, I I mean, in some regards, uh, his his change uh, of that thing was quite significant. You know, it may not appear such a huge thing, To us but uh, in terms of the Vatican uh, Curia and so on that would have been a big statement because it basically said the church was wrong.
1: Regarding the decision by the European courts to remove the crucifix from educational institutions across Italy, um, how do you feel, how do you think that Pope John Paul would have felt about that decision?
2: Well I think he would have felt, uh, resented that decision very very much. Um, you know his his own background in Poland was pretty much the same as Italy or Ireland, where Catholicism was the predominant uh, culture. Because I think the crucifix, you know, in Italy is is uh, much more than a religious phenomenon. It's part of the general culture, as anyone who's ever lived there for a while will realise. So there's a lot more involved here than just a religious symbol. It's also a cultural symbol, uh, even you know. I remember talking to many Italians. You know, the Italians are not known for practicing their faith. They're, they're re- renowned for belonging, but they're not <laughs> very, very exemplary in practicing it in any meaningful way like we in Western Europe uh, would, would uh, regard it as, as practical. So um, I wasn't at all surprised that the, that the um, Italian government l- launched uh, uh, lodged an appeal with the uh, European Court for Human Rights. And had the, that decision overturned. Uh, I think it was last March. So I, I couldn't have uh, imagined that they would have let that go. I mean, the Italian state itself, because it's so much a part of the ethos and the culture of the people. And I think you know there were some very unlikely uh, representatives in, in uh, Premier Berlusconi's party uh, who were very vocal about uh, this. And I, I think the the um, The European Court uh, adopted a policy. I mean, there's 47 countries represented there, but they adopted a policy that limited the court's decision about traditions and national culture in member countries, and I think that was why the decision was reversed last March.
1: With all that said, how was your life affected after that period? How did you feel coming away from that amazing position, that, that amazing honour of serving Pope John Paul II.
2: Yes, and uh, the present Pope, uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger, was the chairman of our group, so uh, he was someone also that I knew very well. And uh, another, you know, wonderful person, very educated, extremely intelligent and so forth, but as I said, a very different person. But the, the basic questions that I had there in direct response to yours well, as I began to see, you know, in the courses of my researches, because I was fortunate enough from the time I was 18 years old, I was fortunate enough to be involved in study or research full time, right, right to the time when I ceased to be a professor and became president of the university. So uh, I began to uh, feel that the traditional picture of Jesus, the traditional picture, say, of how the New Testament Gospels were formed, you know, did not really stand examination. And uh, I was always struck in particular by one factor, well, two factors, let's put it this way. First of all, in the Gospels of the New Testament, we uh, find a little about Jesus when he's born, a couple of days. Then we're told that he goes to Egypt to escape the persecution of King Herod then he comes back uh, into view again at the time of his bar mitzvah presumably when he's 12 years old in the temple he's there for three days and after that he disappears from sight entirely with not a mention except he went down to nazareth was subject to them etc we hear not another word till he was 30 years old 18 years absence which longer than the rest of his entire life now i mean was there something Uh, so unimportant going on there that it wasn't worth mentioning or was there something so vitally uh, crucial going on that it could not be mentioned and I began to see evidence that it was the latter also when I looked at the teachings of the New Testament I saw for instance that every major parable of Jesus is also contained in the writings of the Buddha the Buddha Gautama who lived 500 years prior to him So that uh, shouted to me, you know, that Jesus must have had some exposure to the Orient, and possibly it was during that 18-year period that he had that exposure.
1: Well, of course, he he did spend time in India, did he
2: not? Yes, so that's when I I stumbled on the work by the Russian uh, uh, researcher Nicholas Notovich, who went to what's now Kashmir, I think it was in 1887, and he was told by uh, the monastery, the head of the monastery where he was, which is uh, near the city of Leh, a province, or the, uh, the monastery was called Himes, Himis, H-I-M-I-S. They, they told him that there w- were manuscripts in their library which told of the life of Jesus between the age of 12 to 14 and the age of, of 26, that he journeyed to the east, to India, and then uh, after six years in the sacred cities of india where he was very discouraged because he all he found were pompous gurus who wanted to be served he then went up into the mountains along the western side of the himalayas into nepal and there he did meet real teachers and he he stayed there another six years and then came back farther west in his 26th year I and mean, this all clicked and made perfect sense with me and i also noticed there was another Visitor to the United States back in the in the 1950s, I think in 1952, the head of the monastery of Puri, which would which would be on the the uh, northwestern side of India, and he said in an interview with uh, S- uh, Aurob- Aurobindo's uh disciple there that there were also manuscripts of a similar kind in many monasteries throughout India and and outside of india and in tibet so that made perfect sense to me because uh, all of all the teachings of jesus which had such an oriental flavor you know uh, just clicked right into that point of view now of course it would be very very naive uh, to interpret me as <laughs> saying that that uh, either jesus or the buddha were plagiarists either of each other or separately because i think what what became clear and when you study many of the other writings of the sages of those centuries they were all channels of a much deeper wisdom that really was older than the foundations of the world now that doesn't in my mind in any way diminish jesus in my mind it exalts him
1: i was going to ask you if i may where is matthew and luke for you in this process how how do you view their work their relationship to Jesus or not in in that bigger picture?
2: Well I think I'd like to preface it by maybe might sound a rather outrageous statement and that is that I don't think that there's a single word in the Gospels of the New Testament written by anyone who knew Jesus personally. Uh, The Gospels, you know, grew uh, into existence over quite a long period and they were a generation removed from from the events they were describing at least so the first gospel is uh, biblical scholars today generally accept was was the gospel of saint mark now mark was uh, writing in the city of rome it's generally accepted as well and also he was uh, basically peter's secretary so mark's gospel is fundamentally the gospel of peter and I think it bears all the marks of that. I was in one of the DVDs I did last week on Mary Magdalene, for instance, which is going to be called Mary Magdalene, History's Most Misunderstood Woman. Uh, you know, the Gospel of Mark doesn't mention her by name except when it's uh, appropriate for downing her, like, like saying that she was the woman from whom seven devils were cast out. So that's understandable, that uh, the famous enmity between Mary... Magdalene and Peter of course would have come through in the Gospel of Mark. Now the Gospel of Matthew uh, was obviously written. If you you lay the two texts beside each other you can see that Matthew was looking at Mark's Gospel when he was writing his own and it's interesting the things he includes and the things that he excludes. Luke of course much later still and uh, much much further removed.
1: There must be however in all of this so much evidence contextually they all wrote such similar stories of, of jesus's account that it might be indisputable as as to the accuracy of the storylines that they all uh, seem to have that are, are all so similar in their depth and their breadth
2: well there is but there's also an enormous diversity uh, which uh, of course appears in all of the gospels for instance there is no infancy narrative good bad or indifferent in in some gospels there is for instance in st luke as you have mentioned it but you know other gospels don't mention it at all the gospel of john for instance and then there's an entirely different assessment of jesus in john's gospel than what would have been there i think there's an enormous diversity of uh, of opinions about even you know even within the canon of the new testament there's an enormous diversity of approaches to understanding jesus now i'm not a person who doesn't believe jesus didn't exist or anything like that but I think what is more significant is what they do not mention. For instance, this, uh, this terrible gap of 18 years, which is probably the most formative years in his life. And, uh, you know, the, also the fact that, that right on the heels of all of that, the, the major groupings that were there in, let's call it, a primitive Christianity in the earlier years, the Cainites, the Ebionites, uh, the Carpocratians, Capric- Cap- Capric- Capric- etc., They were all eliminated, and there was one group that triumphed out of all the others. I like to call them the Yom Kippur Party, because I think what happened was when these people, and I'm talking basically of the disciples of Jesus, were were trying to make sense of this magnificent person who had walked among them for three years. I know he had healed the sick, he had uh, blind were healed the lame were able to walk again he rose people from the dead he walked on water he multiplied loaves and fishes making sense of this individual obviously was a tall order and i think probably what happened to set things off on the course that they did take and which brings us back to the italian crucifixes again yes is this that is that in the days of the temple the major one of the major festivals was Yom Kippur, the Day of the Atonement, when the Jewish people called to mind all the ways they had offended God, and they wanted to make reparation for that. Now, in the temple, there were two two animals that were very central to their cere- ceremonials. First was a goat without spot or blemish. The goat was laden up with symbolic baggage, thereby, you know, expressing what jesus would do for us he took the our burdens on his shoulders and carried them away so they're forgotten the other animal was the spotless lamb which was sacrificed on the altar of the temple and its blood was regarded as symbolically washing away our sins so i think what the, some of the apostles said when trying to make sense of jesus my my goodness he is the quintessential goat and lamb of yom kippur He's the one who died and washed away our sins in the sight of God. And he's the one who takes our burdens on his shoulders. And I think after that, Jesus became seen in the context of Yom Kippur in terms of a suffering Savior who was sent here by some unimaginable means or other to appease the vengeance of a savage God against us and to carry away our sins. I think that Jesus came here to do something far, far more magnificent than that. Can I I think it's what's missing from the gospels.
1: Can I ask in one of your videos, I recognized a comment
2: (laughs) looking after them is to ask Jesus to do it for me. If only I place my trust in Jesus, he will save me from my sins and look after me and all will be well. Well Jesus cannot eat my lunch for me, and Jesus cannot be born for me, and neither can Jesus save me. Because what we're talking about in this, in real terms, is not being saved by any one, God or otherwise, we are talking about a personal level. That
1: evolution. you considered that we could not be saved by Jesus, but that in, in actual fact we had to save ourselves, if, if I'm quoting correctly.
2: Uh, I'm sure you are. Anyone who's as thorough as you, I'm sure, is quoting accurately. <laughs> <laughs> What I mean by that is, I don't remember the place where it is, but what I mean by that is that I think Jesus did not come to suffer and die for our sins. So in my mind, you know, things like a crucifix on a wall is already already an aberration from the truth of what he was. But I obviously do not hope or in any way feel that, you know, the majority of the Italian people will ever (laughs) join with me in that view. But I think what Jesus came to do instead of that was to teach us how to draw out the potential, the divine potential in every man and woman who has ever walked this earth. That's what he came to teach. And unfortunately, you know, it was turned into something much the poorer, which is the conventional image of Christianity that the Yom Kippur party has marketed so successfully ever since, largely, you know, getting off to a flying start with the Emperor Constantine after the First Council of Nicaea in 325. That is what he came to teach, was to bring out the eternal in man. And in part of my, my book coming out on, on Jesus, I have, I have to, uh, attempted there to illustrate that the teachings of Jesus, if you look over you know from the heights of it, the Sermon on the Mount down to the minutest part of what he taught, they really are tools for the manipulation of the quantum field they're not really moral precepts first of all they're ways that you can change reality and when i came across the uh, the writings of the quantum physicists and how the observer creates reality which is of course what i found in its quintessential form in the ramp school of ancient wisdom when i found those teachings i think that is exactly what jesus was talking about and indeed all the great masters down the ages they were telling us that how you observe reality changes it and if you want to uh, accomplish something say if you want if you're sick and you want to get well if someone has cancer and they're dying or whatever you know we always feel we should beg god ask god for a favor implore god you know beseech god and of course in 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 terms of quantum physics and what it tells us about neuroscience etc that means we can never get it. I I call those collection of words, begging, asking, hoping, wishing, beseeching, etc the vocabulary of doom. Because at least we know in quantum physics that if you want to manifest something into your life, you have to already become it. Jesus put that quintessentially well when he said, if you pray for something, believe it's already yours and it shall be so. So we've spent all our time doing the exact opposite of that. We are saying it's not already ours and then expecting someone to give it to us. That makes it impossible to happen.
1: Well, let me ask this. um, I think that acts as a perfect segue, as it were, into religion in the wider world. And we had touched on this earlier in the program. Looking at people like Martin Luther and Calvin, who, Martin Luther, this um, amazing man who, who, of course, uh, at the, the Diet of Worms was pushing back against the, uh, the church, uh, against the popes, and reminding them that scripture was scripture and, and and that had to be the main focus. What is your feeling on, on Martin Luther in particular and Calvin that possibly may have created waves that we are still experiencing today?
2: Yes, I think, you know, in, in their own time, they were doing what, what what we've been talking about today, were doing that in their own time. Um, I mean, you know, you cannot but admire the, the greatness of the stands that both Luther and Calvin uh, took in their time. I mean, you might draw the line at some of the things. For example, Calvin's uh, understanding of predestination, which you know, given the theological presuppositions he was working with about the relationship of God and the world, I suppose was uh, an inescapable conclusion, but not a very attractive one. Uh, I, I think that they they did raise enormous questions. I know their, their you know, their debates with the Church were about many things, uh, ranging from, you know, the abuse of indulgences. You remember the old... Uh, statement about tetzel the friar who was touring germany raising funds for the building of saint peter's basilica in rome and uh, he had a barrel with a hole in the top into which coins could be dropped and he promised that all your relatives who had died you know could be assured of being ushered into the sight of god if you gave a reasonable donation to the cause and i think he had a little rhyme when something like, then das im coffer klingt, so fort nach uh, Himmel the Seele springt, I think it ran like that. When the coin in the coffer clings, uh, straight away to heaven the soul she springs. I mean, ranging from that, uh, you know, banal level up to the lifestyles, you know, of those in high places in the church and on to the doctrines of the church that might stifle. The true spiritual evolution. I think they ranged over that whole gamut uh, of realities in the church and found fault with uh, with a large amount of them. And of course, that was the stimulus that caused the Catholic Church itself to undergo a period of intense reform, which culminated in the Council of Trent. You know, shortly after the Reformation. So it had a profound influence for good on all the churches involved, Catholic or Protestant. However. I think uh, we can say this of of all the churches, that they are all looking in a place that most people are really not that interested in looking today. And uh, I've often pointed out how striking it was to me that so many young people particularly who seem to have a great love of God and a great love of what's called spirituality but uh, don't seem to have much time for the organizations and institutions that claim to represent God on this earth.
1: Where, did, where does that failure lie? Where would you say that um, there was a responsibility or an accountability, as it were, yeah. to, to reverse that, where uh, church has been so alienated in a, in a way
2: now? Well, I think a lot of people are, are really looking for what I mentioned earlier, this personal growth this personal empowerment of me? Is there some way, for instance, that I can wake up in the morning and know that my day is going to be the way that I would like it to be? Is there something that I would like to accomplish that I'm not being told how to accomplish? In other words, is it time to move away from a a church set of rules and regulations which I'm supposed to obey or not obey, as the case may be, and to get away from the notion of a God up there, which is the one I pictured in the DVD on the Hamburger Universe. um, The Hamburger Universe God is up there watching every move that you and I make, you know, from the time we draw our first to our last breath, noting everything down, I'm sure on a computer these days, not in the book of life anymore. And when I die or you die... He presses enter, and depending on the total, you know, under one column uh, that I've accomplished all these rules and regulations, or the opposite, that I have failed, then I'm sent either to heaven or to hell for for an everlasting punishment, as it's now taught today. Now, Jesus never taught the existence of a hell of everlasting punishment. He used only two words, as you probably know, in the New Testament, Sheol and Gehenna. Gehenna was the rubbish dump outside Jerusalem, where all the garbage was piled and burned. And Sheol was a shallow grave, uh, which in Jewish tradition, of course, to be buried in a shallow grave meant you ran the risk of being dug up and eaten by wild animals and so forth. So those are the two images that he used. And I I remember one day, uh, probably 15 or 20 years ago, I looked up uh, about 50 translations into English of the New Testament, and that's not as horrendous a task as it might seem, because there are concordances of all these things. But I just wanted to see which of them had correctly translated the Greek text about Gehenna and Sheol. Did they translate Gehenna and Sheol, or did they translate it hell, which is not what Jesus said. And you know, 48 out of the 50 I consulted had mistranslated it. So I think that is what young people today are finding. You're not being told how to accomplish this personal spiritual growth which will give me a whole new empowerment over my life. And that's why they've gone to some of the Eastern religions which do claim in some degree to do that. That is what I found, for instance, in the Ramtha school. That it was not about following, it was not about, you know, uh, worshipping a guru, it was about regaining personal empowerment. I think that is what the young people of the world today are finding missing is in there, all of the religion
1: Is there not a, a danger in, in what some uh, define as a postmodern society, though, that the one truth that God provides us can be diluted into many truths if people go their own way?
2: Yes, there's always a danger, obviously, in every endeavor, so we just have to try and avoid the danger, but where is this one truth that God ostensibly has given us? Where would you say that this truth is to be had? I mean, if I look at the New Testament, if I look, for instance, uh, again, an event fresh in my memory from last week, um, the famous incident when Jesus Uh, rescues Mary Magdalene from the stoning with adultery. You know, she was dragged out to a quarry and uh, all of the local men were in a circle around her lifting up suitably sized stones into the folds of their garments to stone her to death according to the law of Moses. And the voice rang out from the back, halt, all you who would stone the innocent. And he walked into the middle of the circle and of course they were all uh, upset that he was halting their fun. And he said, those, those among you who are without sin cast the first stone. And we're told that he bent down and wrote in the dust in front of each of them. And one by one, they started to filter away shamefully because what he wrote, according to the tradition, was their secret sins. And of course, with their wives and daughters there, present at the back of the crowd. No one wanted to be exposed more. That incident, that powerful incident, if you look at some of the earliest texts of the New Testament, like the Codex Vaticanus, which is in the Vatican Library, it's 4th century, and the Codex Sinaiticus, which is in the British Library, uh, they don't contain that section. In other words, that piece was added into the New Testament, you know, in the 4th century. So, you know, I think this is just one good example whereby you have to say that the scriptures are not divine texts let down from God containing, you know, infallible truth, that they have a very, very human aspect to them. I'm not saying that there aren't wonderful things in the scriptures of the New Testament and the Old. There are marvelous things which have done enormous work for the edification and uplifting of of 2,000 years of people. But there also are, you know, you do no honor to the scriptures by thinking of them as something that they are not. And that's where we will fall, I'm afraid.
1: What I'd like to do is return uh, to an extract from your website where you talk about... Adapting to the revelations of teaching that may have been lost concealed or distorted by Christian teachings Um, Can you can you give me? uh, In theological terms or theological teachings uh, in in the way perhaps that you may have conducted them um, What are the differences between the ancient if I may call it that teachings? then compared to the teachings that you would have in modern day
2: well, I think if, if you look, for instance, at the uh, enormous find that was made at Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1946, December 46, uh, there were, well, we have 52 books, there were books, that were in scrolls, uh, of that find. It's alleged, and I think with good reason, that the, the mother of the man who found the scrolls uh, used several of them to light the stove in the morning. But anyway, 52 survived. But I think there's a very, very different uh, understanding of Christianity coming out uh, of those 52 documents than some of them. For instance, the Gospel of Thomas, supposedly written by the twin brother of Jesus, that document, even though it was well known from France to India in the first century, it was so relentlessly pursued and destroyed, that not one single copy of it was known to exist until that find at No.
1: No. Nevertheless, the the Dead Sea Scrolls were an incredible find, were they not?
2: Yes, but they were, of course, not dealing with Christianity. They were dealing with uh, Judaism and uh, prior to the time of Jesus. But uh, in in terms of uh, understanding primitive Christianity, I think that that's the find that has shed enormous light on how Jesus really was, uh, which complements, I would say, the writings of the canonical New Testament.
1: But in terms of that word that that you use, distorted, uh, could, you, could you specify some of the points where distortion would be prevalent?
2: Well, the main distortion uh, is the one we've already touched on. I think this is the heart and core of the whole matter. Was Jesus a suffering savior who came here to appease the anger of a vengeful God against us? Or was he not? Was he here to do something much, much more profound than that, which is to teach us how to draw into this physical life the abilities that come to us from the fact that we live in other dimensions of existence above this. So this is what I was so interested in the Orb Project uh, about because those show that there are other dimensions of of everything that exists here, but of course we're principally interested in human beings. In other words, we are not just a physical entity here. And if I draw, unfortunately, my last breath, that is not the end of me. There are six levels of existence uh, between this physical body and, and the origin of, as uh, coming from the Creator and I think that is fundamentally what Jesus was talking about how to draw out the abilities of these other dimensions of ourselves so that they now actually in here in the physical body that was how he did what's so called a miracle I'm thinking of putting on the front of my books on Jesus uh, hopefully coming out next year the one phrase there are no miracles, only shortage of information because what we're talking about really is when all is said and done a higher form of physics and if we understand how higher forms of physics operate then many of the things that uh, we call miracles which are of course there at the behest of a god to do for in for you in some particular circumstances when you were well deserving we see instead that actually these are things that any, anyone can do. Jesus himself said that. He said, you know, all the miracles that I have done, you can do, and greater indeed than these will you do. And that was the test that he gave us. Now, where is this happening today? I mean, if Jesus brought this message and taught us that he, we could do all the miracles that he did, where is it happening? And if it's not happening, isn't it a sign that you know somewhere without wanting to judge or come down on anybody isn't it a sign we've got something wrong somewhere because what he prognosticated for us has just not occurred and i think you know we have put our finger on some of the reasons why that did not take place
1: and this of course is, is really where your four pivotal questions come in clearly in your life and in your work, who am I, where do I come from, what should I do, where am I going? Right. These questions, were they something that evolved in your mind uh, back in your years at seminary?
2: Yes, I mean, uh, I mean, especially, I mean, I had an old teacher one time who said, you know, the the only real way to learn theology is to have to teach it yourself. And I really found that was true, even after the years, right up to when I finished my doctorate in theology. You know, to have to study a whole subject, I mean, these are vast areas, but to have to master, you know, the whole history of the thing and then to be able to present it in in a clear form to students, that is really the best way. And I began to realize that, you know, not just from my readings of the, christian sources but the re- readings of the buddhist and the hindu sources and the dao and everything else that basically these people were all asking the same question even so-called atheists and agnostics you know the my favorite atheist of the old kind because there are several boutique atheists around now but my old my my favorite old atheist was frederick nietzsche the the great philosopher who died in 1900 And he was a classical scholar, of uh, classical Greek and Latin. And someone was arguing with him one day, saying, you know, we have to accept the the Gospels of the New Testament. They are the inspired written word of God. And Nietzsche said, if you're telling me that God wrote the New Testament, you know the New Testament is not written in classical Greek. It's written in Koine Greek, which is the Greek of the streets, vulgar Greek. But Nietzsche said, if God wrote the New Testament, he certainly didn't know much Greek. So all people, even atheists, agnostics, and various religions, they're all asking, I think, those same questions. Even if you have no belief at all, you're still trying to make sense of your life. I remember one time in Belfast, uh, when the troubles up there were at their height, I saw a put in whitewash along the wall of the main graveyard, Is There a Life Before Death?, so I think that's another slant on it. You know, everyone, everyone wants answers to these questions, and I, I'm sorry to say, very sorry, because I, I am not hostile to religion. I'm sorry to say they're not being given, and people are thirsting for them. It's exactly the picture that Jesus said. You know, the sheep are looking up, and they are not being
1: fed. With that said, uh, that has been an incredible um, start Uh, to our two-part series. I do thank you today for this um, great beginning to this series.
2: Well, thank you, David. And uh, may I, for my part, say, you know, I I have done, I think after the Orb book came out, I was on more than 200 uh, radio and TV programs and interviews. But I have, and obviously many, many, many prior to that, but I've never met uh, Anyone who has prepared so diligently for an interview as I have with you. So thank you, I appreciate that.
1: Well, I thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Mihal Ledwith, uh, thank you for for being here today. And for our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. Uh, We will be returning in the second part of this series. Coming very soon, you can visit davidgibbons.org for any information on this or any other program in the series. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening.